Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. The performance of Luis Suarez last night was quite incredible, really, no matter what way you look at it, but it made even more of an impact on me because I managed to do something last night that I haven't successfully done in about 15 years. I watched match of the day without knowing the results. Oh. Yeah. This is actually unbelievable, right? Because I did the exact same thing. I went playing a bit of five-a-side last night. Started at 8 o'clock. And as we were going in, someone said, oh, geez, Arsenal have already scored. I was like, don't tell me. Just, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me. That's it. I was on my way home, yeah. From then on, I managed to successfully uh, avoid all mention of the scores. It made match of the day absolutely (laughs) brilliant. Yeah. Uh, all of my thoughts about matches today have been turned right around. It's the best show on television. It did start to get boring, though, by the time Stoke Cardiff came around. But I was on my way home from holidays, Kieran, as you know, waiting at a baggage carousel, checking Twitter, you know, just seeing mm. what's going on in, in the world. Immediate, because, you know, there's no such thing as Twitter when you're abroad. Mm. Of course. Well, well unless you want to pay those wrong rates, which, which have come down and... In, in recent times but are still extortion I immediately see that David Moyes is under pressure so I could guess that result and then I thought no 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 put the phone into the back pocket this was already about 20 past 10 by the yeah. way so I was going to miss it probably the start of match of the day mm-hmm. but get home and see the rest of it so I got there watched a load of great football condensed into a short period of time without knowing what the outcome is going to be it's not a bad way to watch the sport because let's be honest it can be kind of boring watching an entire 90 minutes mm-hmm. uh, well I, <laughs> I, I, was, I was actually watching it with an Everton fan and at one stage the commentator said um it's been a largely uneventful first half, and I was I was looking at my mate, and I was like, "It's not uneventful at all. We've just seen four minutes of brilliant football. Yeah. I I can't take this level of excitement. What are you on about uneventful? Yeah. I mean, this is you know this whole highlights thing. Okay, this could really catch on. Could really take off. I, I'm yeah. telling you, it could it could really blow up. You know, 2014 could be the year of, of the, the highlights, highlights of the highlights show. <laughs> I really think it could uh, because mm. it changes your whole perspective. I think. Uh, well, how did, to, how did how did you not know this? I mean, because I Owen was on a plane. Fair yeah. enough. Well, but I, I was playing five aside football. Oh right, okay. At, at, at starting at eight o'clock okay. and at nine, and we kind of said, myself and Paddy, my mate, we said 
we're not going to find out the score. So we're going My to watch match. Today. So we're going to we're going to watch it. We're going to watch matches today, like totally unaware, right? Yeah. So it, but see, the thing is, it takes you back to watching. You know, you you had two choices back in the day: listen to the world's worst Radio Five Live uh, reception, mm-hmm. or just forget about it and watch Sports Night with. Line. Yeah, on the midweek games. Yeah, the, mid- the midweek weekends, games. We were blessed over here in Ireland for a large part of our childhood. Yeah. Or to actually had live coverage. Or there was that weird period where they would start the match half an hour late. Yeah. Oh, see, yeah. This Remember, matches would start at half three. In yeah. But see, this is it, right? It takes you back to the whole, you're kind of second guessing what you're looking at. And I remember actually, before I get on to the highlights thing, the half an hour late thing was really bizarre. Because, But I remember, you know the, the day Steve Bruce got the two goals from Manchester United to beat Sheffield Wednesday? Yeah. I was watching in my house, my three brothers are in, yeah. Yeah, United fans and all the rest, right? So we're all sitting down, uh, Sheffield Wednesday, a goal up. My mother comes in with about like kind of a couple of minutes to go in, in ordinary time. She goes, has anything happened yet? <laughs> <laughs> and we all turn no. around and go, what, what does, what's that supposed to mean? What's that supposed to mean? And then the two goals go in and we're like, Not she's ruined it. She's actually uh, ruined completely it. Completely ruined. What would yeah, have the, been the great one of the great Fra- Francis walks away with a smirk on her face. Yeah, well. <laughs> That'll teach them for not doing the washing up. Yeah, oh well. But uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Cardiff-Stoke game there. But see, it was boring. If I'd known it was a nil-nil, I wouldn't have watched. But then you see Charlie Adam getting a yellow, picking up a yellow card and you're like, oh, he's got a yellow card. Oh, that must mean he got sent off. Because you know, they, they wouldn't show, they wouldn't show a yellow card, card otherwise. Yeah. But that, see, but see, you're second guessing yourself there, and yeah. it just turns out he but should you know, have. The, that's that's the you know because you're not watching a, a real sporting event, you're watching a constructed narrative. Yeah, and you know it's Chekhov's gun, Charlie Adams' yellow card. You know, if a gun is hanging on the wall in Act One, yeah. then it must be fired by Act Three. You know, if Charlie Adams picks up a booking in the yeah. first half, then that's because he's going to get a yeah. second yellow why, card. Why, why are they showing the substitute coming on? Yeah. Oh, he must have done something. But of course, there was a twist because it just turned out that Charlie Adam committed several other atrocities, fouls atrocities, and should have been sent off, but wasn't. So they needed to put see, in that yellow card. They so keep, he could understand. See, they keep you guessing, you know. Yeah. And it, and also, why are they showing this foul? I mean, he's twenty five yards out. I mean, why are they showing us this foul? He must have scored. I do want to move on, but the biggest giveaway in those situations is a substitution. Uh, the substitution oh, here is, comes a player yeah. coming <laughs> off another player. The Might he make an is impact? The big one, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, good to go back to 1993 there anyway, guys. It was, mm. it was very enjoyable. More of that, I'm sure, in second captain's football. 20 years ago, would you imagine that? Heineken Cup weekend is coming up. We're going to be focusing on some match-specific conversation, but also the coaches, I think, there's quite a bit of interest there. Rob Penny has talked about being in negotiations, or certainly he's looking for a new contract. He feels that he is worth uh, another year there. We'll chat about that ahead of their game. Pat Lamb, the Connacht coach, has apologised to fans, much in the style of Andre Villas-Boas, not sure. I know you guys were talking about this on Tuesday. Not necessarily sure. Managers apologising to supporters always goes down that well with the players. Now I think one or two of the Connacht players actually apologise as well. So it might be a slightly different dynamic there. Mm. And Matt O'Connor faces probably his biggest test so far away to Northampton. The yeah. team, of course, uh, who uh, have a lot of motivation after yeah, well, see, beat them the final. See, it's kind of in, yeah, the motivation thing is kind of interesting. You know, they're looking for revenge in that. Mm-hmm. I mean. I think it might be kind of different for Northampton. It's like it's not like Leinster did anything underhand, you know, to beat them. The, Northampton just blew it. So rather than revenge, it's more let's try and right the wrongs of our own game as opposed to Leinster doing anything, hor- anything horrible. On. So I think it's kind of an interesting. Arsenal didn't do anything particularly underhand to Liverpool in 1989, but John Aldridge seemed to delight <laughs> in the pain of Arsene Wenger, who had nothing to do with that when Liverpool. Knocked Arsenal out of the Champions League? Yeah, that's right. Is that it? Maybe about eight. So what, we're talking about almost two decades later. 
Yes. Sometimes teams just don't like being beaten by other teams in sport. Yeah. It doesn't have to be underhand. Yeah. It just has to be a defeat. Maybe maybe you're right. Owen. Maybe you're we'll right. be talking about the doping scandal in British horse racing. Jared Butler is the Irish trainer who you'd have heard has been banned for five years. Greg Wood wrote a brilliant piece in The Guardian last night detailing not only Butler's indiscretions, but also some broader questions about maybe some of the trainers who aren't going to have to face the music and some of the bigger questions with regards to doping in that sport. I found it quite fascinating, so I look forward to speaking to Greg Wood about that uh, a little bit later on. First up, we are talking rugby. Shane Horgan and Liam Toland are ready to go. Shane, Rob Penny has said, as I mentioned, that he wants a new contract. Really, uh, realistically speaking, are the next two weeks and the results of those two games going to be the key to getting it? Um, it shouldn't be, but uh, very often it is. That's the case. Um, that People and people giving contracts to uh, coaches look at um, like the short term. It also is it's difficult because not giving him a coach, uh, sorry, not giving him a contract in the next couple of weeks sort of is a little bit de- destabilizing in, in itself as well. Um, it's it sort of it's it's saying that you don't have trust in the coach going forward. So, how long do you leave it? How long do you keep the negotiations going? I think um, I'd imagine Munster will try and keep them going certainly uh, for the next few weeks and and maybe into the spring and then reassess where things are. Um, of course, he'd like another year. It's it's unusual and probably two years is difficult to get done what you want to do in just two years three years does seem more like it but you know I think if they then just gave him a one year contract to to see where they were in a year's time again I don't think that would be a a real vote of confidence so there's a really there's a lot to play for for him and for his team over the next couple of weeks. He did use the term transition process when talking to the media as well yes is it fair that he's the team is still in transition or at this stage after a year and a decent amount of a second season should should that be kind of done away with should you nearly be where you need to be no I think it depends on what um, you started off with and, and you can't deny that that team uh, has had a massive transitional period has lost some of their greatest names that have ever played for the team um, over the course of Penny stewardship so he has had a very difficult uh, period and I'd say yes it does take longer to transition than, than two years sometimes when there's um, uh, when there has been a lot of changes and also it's difficult to there hasn't been the conveyor belt of really really exceptional players coming through um, so it is a difficult time for him and, uh, but you do have to work with what you have and it, it's not really are they the finished product are they where he wants them to be it's more a question of have, has the transition that's gone on and that he's, uh, that he's um, ran, has that progressed at fast enough rate? And is it, where, um, is it on the path of where Munster want to be? Now, you can make a case for either side of that. You know, I think some of the... It took him a while to find his feet. I think um, some of the play that he's tried to establish I don't think suits Munster. Or some of the play I don't actually think suits any team. So it'll be a question of whether the, the Munster board believe that the, the style that he's trying to implement and that he has you know, really tried to implement over the last 18 months, whether that's something that they see ultimately leads to a successful route uh, and success for, for Munster. Shane has his doubts. Liam, what do you think? Is it the right way and is he getting there fast enough? Yeah, I think there's two ways of looking at it, Owen. You have to be realistic and see what he's actually inherited. And the, Shane has hit on a couple of things that are very interesting. The, the concept of transition, um, like for Leinster, part of their transitional has been seamless because they have a conveyor belt of schools, etc., coming in and feeding into it. But they also have a checkbook as well. And the checkbook has seen a South African fullback and an Australian winger arrive into Leinster, um, replacing a couple of Leinster guys with nearly 80 international caps. 
Munster don't have that checkbook. They don't have that buying power. So in a way, I'd be disappointed how Munster managed their brand in their most successful periods that they've allowed themselves to really rely on the youth programme that's coming through and the schools programme that's coming through, which is now providing fruit, but not maybe at the pace that professional teams wanting to win hiding cups are able to do so. So if you look at... Um, Leinster again when Johnny Sexton went, a monster player for Leinster and when Ronan Agar went for Munster who did both teams replace those players with and in Leinster's case they were able to get uh, Gothbert who has come in and in Munster's case they stayed from within in, in what they have, no disrespect to what they have but it just means that those solutions will take a little bit longer in Munster than, than they are in, in Leinster for but those I, couple yeah, of years. As Shane said the way it often happens is that maybe those bigger points are, are missed when contracts are given out and the next two weeks are going to define Munster's Heineken Cup season. Do you think that it will actually, Rob Penny's part in the future of Munster will sort of hinge on what happens in the next two games? Well, the, the good news is I think Perpignan are, to get the right word here, I think they're a very poor French side. Uh, I've been watching them over the last few weeks and I watched them at home against Claremont at the weekend and they were awful in nearly everything they did do. They rely heavily on bashing the ball up. Um, all the players do so. They don't have any slick, sophisticated attacking patterns or anything of nature. I think Munster, would, I'd be very disappointed if Munster don't do very well uh, at the weekend, which should mean that the return fixture in France would be very much a Munster's favour, considering Perpignan playing Castro away and Stade Francais away in the following weeks in the top 14. So I think the next two weeks have fallen into play a little bit for Munster. Now, they will say things like Perpignan are a big side and a powerful side, etc. They're a pretty poor side at the level Munster should be able to play at. So I think Munster should negotiate the next fortnight reasonably well. And it goes back to success and style. If Munster have success, then the style is less significant. But for me, watching Munster over the last couple of seasons under Penny, I'm not still 100% sure what their style is. Um, they've got a James Downey in the midfield, for example, who will be a traditional big, ball-carrying guy who doesn't carry a huge amount of ball in the midfield. They kind of skip him out to the wings quite a lot. So I'm not 100% sure of the style. Um, and it's not helped by the fact of injuries now. A little Mike McSherry is out and Damien Varlbegin and Dunnick Ryan. So there's lots of reasons to point to why Munster might be playing the way they want to play. But still, some of the style I'm a bit confused at underpinning. Although if you look, Shane, at results, certainly in the league, they've gone well. There seems to be more consistency there this season. Maybe just take out that one disastrous defeat against Edinburgh in the Heineken Cup. They seem to be doing OK. Um, there's certainly results... Uh, wise they are and if you look at the two last results you're going away in um, Wales and picking up points and, and that's you know, that looks great and it's it'll serve them well to get into the top four at the end of the season but some of the performances have been poor they've been inconsistent um, the the standard of the Rabo I actually think has dropped a little bit this year uh, for, from everyone it hasn't been the quality that I've seen over the last couple of years the Welsh in particular are, are in um, really dire straits with some of the performances are chronic so you know, I uh, I watched the, the game against Cardiff, and, and although that looked like a significant win for them, like this, some of the standard of play was really poor. Like I, the issue that I keep on nailing is that they keep on going on about is when they're trying to move the ball wide. Um, this, the style in which they do it is just it's just wrong it's really it's not done uh, flat enough it's done too far behind the gain line so if you've got someone like Casey Laula La, if you have someone like him taking a step and trying to get his hands free there's no one with him because um, they're actually too far behind the carrier also if you see there's a lot of the p- passes that go from like 13 um, full back to winger 
even before that, even from 12, the player will turn their shoulders downfield and they will run across the field. And there's actually nobody holding the defensive line whatsoever. So the ball will ultimately get out to that wide uh, area. But it's it, there's no nobody. There's been no threat. There's been no chance of a break up the middle. There's been no options. And it's very very easy to defend. And that's something consistently when the pressure is is on that they they revert to that. Now when actually the, when big games come and they don't they, they they realize they have to carry the ball a bit straighter uh, with um a bit more attacking the gain line then i actually think they've looked really good but that's been off the back of huge emotional performances and you can't rely on emotional performances for every game throughout the year sometimes you've got to rely on doing just doing the right things being tactically and um and te- technically correct. And it's been too often this season and last. Munster haven't been. Uh, Liam, did, Munster haven't had too many players involved with Ireland over the last couple of weeks. Do you think that's a help or uh, is it a hindrance from the point of view it's, it's saying something about the, the quality of the playing staff? Well, there's a bit of both in that, Murph, isn't there? There's, uh, it's, it's, it certainly says that the new wave of players coming into Munster, and there's a lot of talented guys come in there, particularly in the front row, that they're just not ready step into international level but they will in 18 months time and certainly under Joe Schmidt they would be encouraged to do so so they're just not ready there there's certainly quality there but they're not there so in the meantime they have had an opportunity little like Connacht in many ways just to keep on keeping going and that is reflected as Shana said in the, in the wins over the last few weeks so it is good in one way and I think that a lot of the players who aren't playing for Ireland or involved in Ireland will be shortly so there is quality there but it's not quite at the level that if Munster could play in the playoffs, which is not going to happen now, but it'll happen in time, a lot of those players may not yet be ready under the style that's been employed. A little bit like what Shane is talking about. Uh, just in terms of the number of match points over the next two weekends from Perpignan Games, Liam, what what do Munster need? What what's an acceptable return? Well, if you if you look at the the hurdle as the jump on, uh, I genuinely think Perpignan are a, they're far from easy but there's far greater challenges in European rugby than they're going to face this Sunday. Uh, I would be upset if Munster don't win and don't win well and should be pushing for a a bonus point, uh, getting the extra try. Now, whether they have the style to maximise that or not is another debate. So I would be expecting a reasonably comfortable home win which should open the door to an away victory as well. So I would say um, certainly eight points should be well within them. Okay, well Leinster go into a tough game, Shane, away to Northampton under Matt O'Connor, looking like the quality side that they are, I guess only a couple of defeats all season. They do seem not quite to have the fluidity in attack, and that's been quite evident so far anyway in the early days of the Matt O'Connor reign. What do you make of what he has done so far? How how does a Matt O'Connor Leinster team look compared to a Joe Schmidt Leinster team? Um, there aren't huge amount of differences that would jump out off the page and you realise, you think, okay, he, he's really trying to reinvent the wheel. But I don't think he had to. I think he recognised that as well. It would have been foolish of him to um, try throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, so he's gone into a position as coach with Leinster that probably no other coach in Leinster has been in that situation coming in. Um, and as a result, he's tried to tweak more than to, than to you know revolutionise it. 
certainly in defence, you can see that he's trying to increase the line speed, um, not just off the original set play, but he's working very hard to have a, a secondary line speed coming in off the uh, off the second phase and the third phase. Now that's difficult, but it can be very very effective. Um, it also means that you don't want to overcommit to rooks. They're trying to get away from that, and um, they're really trying to get into the faces of of the opposition. That can be very very effective. We saw something uh, similarly implemented by Ireland against New Zealand. It was very effective. Um, it can be identified and you can have a system to, to try and work it out and you are always susceptible a little bit to the offload uh, back on the inside just because the line speed will will necessarily create um, elbows. But that is something that he's tried to do and I think it's important that they have tried to address that because last year and uh, especially towards the latter stages, we saw against the big, big teams that uh, Leinster, when they went, when they weren't quite as full up in the face of the opposition, over a series of phases, they gave away yardage. And ultimately, that can lead to tries. And, and ultimately, that's what it did lead to on a couple of occasions against the really top, top Would big physical teams. Would you class Northampton as one of those top big physical teams? Well, I think they were a team that could grind you down. Certainly, if you look at at, at some of the names, some of the people that they, they have in there, you know, you talk about law, you talk about uh, Hartley, you talk about these guys who can carry the wood, these guys who can carry really, really strongly and will try and batter you into submission. And I would be more concerned if the defensive system that was employed last year was employed this year against Northampton. I think they're more effective at being able to stop that kind of um, attack this year. Um, Attack-wise, Leinster, they haven't, they haven't clicked yet. They really haven't. There hasn't been the consistency. That's because they've been swapping and changing. So, And there has been a little bit of drop in the accuracy of the attack of, of both first phase and uh, and second phase so um, although I do think they have potential to, to, to up their game and, and it's again like Munster these are two very very important weeks Shane have you got a handle on you talked a bit about the technical tactical aspects of Matt O'Connor have you got a handle on what sort of a man manager he is we, you know we heard a lot about Michael Cech as somewhat abrasive style and Joe Schmidt maybe a little bit different do we know what Matt O'Connor is doing behind the scenes there? Well, you know, the word in the camp is that he's going down very well, both with the backroom staff and with the players as well. I think, like all coaches, he can have, he's got you know a bit of a split personality. They have the two sides to them, but um, I think that uh, he likes being on the field. He likes being involved as as well. That's a huge thing for him. But you know, he's he is you know he's hard. He's he's a tough man. Um, he's he maybe not you know I think he's. Uh, Maybe a little bit more even approachable than than Joe, um, but there's been there's been only good only good words coming out from um, the camp. Now that's because very you know they've been winning and there's been there's you know they've been continuing from with what they did last year. So it's really the the friction comes when there's a bit of stress, and that will mm-hmm. be interesting to see how they get over the next couple of weeks, how they proceed when the pressure really comes on at the latter end of the uh, latter end of the season. But you know it, it seems to be working very well. It's a good fit, as I said. He has. He's recognised what was already there, the importance of it. I think he's got the senior players on board. He's also, you know, given guys a chance. You've noticed that he, he's he's rotated the squad in a huge way now. Sometimes because he was forced to, but also because sometimes um, he's 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 wanted to try players out. And I think that's really good. You know, the more players that are in the squad that are, are getting game time, that really helps to um, keep the, the 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 wider squad happy. Yeah, Liam, there might be stress over the next couple of weeks, uh, home and away away and home to Northampton is this one of those Heineken Cup scenarios where if Leinster could take a bonus point out of the away fixture win the home match and hopefully not pick up too many injuries in what will be a couple of physical battles you'd be pretty happy with that? 
Yeah, I think that Northampton are a serious outfit, um, not just because of the names they have, which Shane has mentioned, but their attitudinal change over the last few months has been extraordinary. Uh, most represented by Laws, uh, the second row, Dylan Hartley. Like Dylan Hartley was the kind of the last child of English rugby for a while. They've completely rebooted their attitude towards rugby and their attitude on the pitch, and you can see it particularly in Laws. Like this guy's a phenomenal athlete in the second row, and at Heineken Cup level, will do all sorts of damage. But he has. He has brought in an element of discipline into his hits. Um, like he'd love to see someone like Shane Horgan midfield and to challenge him down, but now he's making decisions to not actually make outrageous late tackles. He's staying in the game. So I think Northampton are a very challenging uh, outfit over the next couple of weeks for those reasons in particular. Um, interesting, to, to, to from a Leinster point of view, I think Matt O'Connor has dulled the insane need for precision and attack that, that Joe Schmidt has done with Leinster. So a lot of what Leinster have been doing in the Rabo has been mediocre, passing behind the back, a little bit sloppy at the level that they're playing at. And I think that level of precision has ebbed away a small bit. I think there's a little bit more ownership being given to the players to, to develop their own their own standards, etc. And in that little void, the standards have dropped a bit in attack, certainly. So I think that you're right. This is a very different game than Munster playing against Perpignan at home. I think to get anything out of the away fixture would be great. To win it would be phenomenal. I think it would be it's going to be tough for them to actually win it. To get a bonus point would be great. And then to back it up at home would be would be a pretty good couple of weeks. It's an interesting one, Shane, because I know managers, coaches, I should say, and players, that they never speak like this about going out and being happy with a bonus point. But is it possible to look at these two-legged games almost as... It's like a Champions League style fixture or something. You're looking for an overall result, and in that context, maybe five points with without giving any bonus points to the opposition will be pretty good. I think I think that's a huge danger in doing that. Right. Um, if you look at the Claremont uh, home and away uh, fixtures last year with uh, Leinster, um, they had an opportunity to win that first game in Claremont, and they didn't take it. And and my, uh, everybody, myself included, thought, you know, actually they've done quite well out of the game, and you know they're they're really now set to to win the home game. And that's not the way it panned out at all. I think you have to be very focused and take this, um, you know, take the away game as a as a individual game, and then. And you take the home game as an individual game and you see what you can get out of both of them. Um, you look at what happened last year as well, again, um, with Ulster and they went to, to, to Franklin's Gardens last year. One of the better performances I've seen uh, ever from Ulster and one of the better performances of any team in Europe last year. They went there, played a phenomenal um, pressure game. Back row dominated um, the, the Northampton back row. Their scrum dominated as well. Um, surprisingly, you know, with all the talk was about the Northampton scrum before that game. Um, the Ulster scrum was phenomenal. Tom Court, a forward, fantastic. The back row got down and scrummaged in every scrum. Like my abiding memory of that game is Tom Court abusing Ian Henderson when he, he stuck his head up at one of the scrums. That's the mentality that um, Leinster are going to have to employ. They're going to have to employ like an eight-man scrum. They're going to have to try and go after this game because you do not know what will happen the following week. You don't know if there will be injuries. Northampton will improve. You know, yeah, There's a bad day. Anything can happen. So Yes, if you, as as analysts, if we look at it over the course of two games, we go, oh, if Leicester came out with five points, that mightn't be so bad. Um, but as a you know, as a team, as a coach, I think it's very dangerous to look at things in that in that light. While we're talking about coaches, Pat Lamb's apology to Connacht supporters, Liam, after losing forty three ten to Edinburgh, it hasn't been going well for them. Do fans? Do players like that kind of thing, or is it? Is, is there is there maybe an element of? 
uh, a coach covering his own back somewhat there and trying to ingratiate himself with supporters. Am I being a bit, um, maybe a bit cynical about that? It's a very, very difficult one because Connacht are unique in so many ways. In fact, Pat Lamb is a Northampton guy uh, who would be interested to hear his ideas on Northampton this weekend. But it's, it's um, Connacht are doing an awful lot of good things and an awful lot of good things right. They've reshaped their whole internal structures. They've a lot of new people in the backroom staff all the way to the CEO, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're doing an awful lot of things. And what they really need is victories. And, and Shane was right in saying that the Rabo has dropped in standard a tad which really should afford Connacht an opportunity to start winning games, and they haven't been winning. So if you look at the overall games that they've played, uh, nine in the Rabble, they've lost eight. And that's not good enough, particularly during the, the Six Nations window on that. So it is a frustrating time for, I'm sure, the coaches and, and, the, and the team, but it's a very, very frustrating time for the people who really want to support the team. I've been in, in, uh, in the sports ground loads of times over the last season or so, and the numbers are really developing and all that sort of stuff. Connacht need games and they don't need moral victories like playing Toulouse at home. They need to start winning bread and butter games and getting into the middle of the rabble and that's very, very disappointing. But at the same time, I would be a fan of coaches uh, washing their linen out in public and that sort of stuff. That certainly wouldn't be a style I'd like. Shane? Yeah. I agree. I agree with Liam. Like you, you start apologising to fans, you're getting on a really slippery slope. I, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a particularly uh, smart move. I also agree with them that much like Leinster. Um, Connacht haven't been as precise this year in their backline play. I think their backline play has dropped from last year. I was very impressed by some of it. Um, they've uh, a talented group of backs, but they were very innovative last year and, and some of the stuff that they were doing you know it, it was it was up there with, with some of the you know best backline play in um in the rabbo when they got it right that slipped this year and what i've th- what i think they have done they reverted to again trying to work off um uh, an emotional element to your game which you cannot do every week you can't rely on motion to, emotion to get you through games every week and and you know, that that sort of a emotional game is like firing everything into it physically trying to beat up the opposition and for a connect team of the size and the resources that they have i don't think that's a smart plan they have to be more innovative they have to look at different ways of beating a team, especially teams that are uh, bigger and more resourced than them, like and and um, Liam will, will know the the adage that springs to mind. And Matt Williams used to say it to us on on a, nearly a weekly basis. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight, and I think that's what Connacht have been doing too often uh, this year. Okay, let's just look quickly, lads, at predictions here. Then uh, we haven't even mentioned the Ulster games. They are playing Treviso away and then at home, so they, they should be all right there. But all four games, Liam, you first. I think uh, Munster should have a... Co- it looked horrible in the opening, but they should have a comfortable win. Leinster is going to be a tough one, uh, really, really tough one. Connacht are going to struggle and Ulster will do well. So when you say Leinster's a tough one, you mean Leinster are going to lose? I think it's. I think Northampton are a very different outfit than they have been in the last couple of years, and I think it's going to be a tough one for them, yeah. Shane? Um, I think Munster will win. Um, I think they'll be a little bit more difficult next week, but I think they'll win reasonably comfortable this week. Um, Northampton against Leinster, just the history there, something <laughs> tells me that, that uh, Leinster will win that one just because there's a bit of a screw in the Northampton head. Um, I think uh, Toulouse will win comfortably and I think Ulster will win comfortably as well. All right, Shane, Liam, enjoy the weekend. Thanks a million. Thanks. Shane Kern with the kick out. The 42-year-old goalkeeper. Turn it out from goal. Here he comes. 
He topped it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us, Common. Liam really wasn't willing to quite go all the way and predict a Leinster defeat there. No, I, no. I, I was. I felt as though it was some, a real hard-hitting interview right at the end there. Liam, just, just you know, answer you can, the question. You can predict the victory. It's you not... should have Jeremy Paxman them. Mm. Just gone all out. We're not leaving Liam until you tell us will Leinster win this game. Well, the cliche or will used to be that you never tip against Munster in the Heineken. Maybe yeah. that. Cliche has shifted to Leinster in recent years. You never explicitly... <laughs> Even though you say to your friends yeah. that they're going to lose, you yeah. don't always go on radio and say... Online yeah. radio. Yeah, and better say, again. Better again. And, and uh, say that they're going to lose. And say that they're going to lose. You just don't do it all. It's just not the done thing. <laughs> the apologies to supporters. It seems like Shane and Liam thought it was a bad idea for Pat Lamb to apologise to fans. I know you you were talking about this on Tuesday, weren't you? What was your what was your take on Andrew Villas Boas apologising? Well, I, I mean uh, all our listeners already heard this, but I haven't Ken. So yeah, I'd like okay. to <laughs> Well basically Alan, I just think it sometimes looks like the manager's kind of trying to suck up to the fans a bit. Yeah. At the expense of the players. You know, kind of trying to sort of sidle up to the fans and say, Hey, listen, I agree with you about those guys. Mm. You know, it's pretty embarrassing what they did. This is what I have I to work apologize, with. you know. I'm really sorry. I wish we had better players too. Uh, you know, that's sometimes how it comes across. I'm sure it's it's always meant in the sincerest possible way, but I think it sometimes doesn't look great. Murphy, I must apologise. I had meant to say at the very start of the show that we've got quite a high-quality P. Bezo on the way. It's probably mm. not a good time to bring it up now because that's putting extra pressure on you. But the, what I'm saying is the raw material is there for you to deliver a top-quality P. Bezo. Let's and see if you can do it. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. <laughs> Right, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a place called Navin. So, uh, Owen, yeah, you've you've sold it as best you can. So I suppose all you can do is apologise if you know I don't deliver. <laughs> yeah, apologise on behalf of us all, but really, it's, it's probably my fault. Uh, this will have to work. Before. But see, the thing is, Owen, you actually missed one of our all-time great P last week from Connor Long who managed to get Graham McDowell and an extremely annoyed manager of Graham McDowell into a photo last week, the World Cup of Golf <laughs> in uh, Melbourne. More from Australia in a moment, uh, but we march on this week with emails from three continents on three, uh, which is a more eloquent expression of this country's love for Pierce Brosnan than anything I could ever say. Uh, Stephen O'Dwyer was at the Murumbi Stadium in Sao Paulo for the semi-final of the Copa Sudamericana, but he was still really depressed about being beaten by New Zealand in that rugby game there a couple of weeks ago. So there wasn't a really a whole lot of crack out of him. You know, he was really? like, I was going to write a really long email, but, oh, you know, I'm still really impressed. Just here's a photograph. So there you go. Uh, Michael Cox has emailed us from a Boeing 737 flight from Mumbai to Delhi. And uh, he was very impressed with our piece on the retirement of Sachin Tendulkar. A few oh, weeks good, ago. Yeah. He writes, so taken was I with the piece that I decided to tap an email out on my phone with elbows tucked in. It was a very, very busy flight. And he was on one of those seats beside the wing. So you can't even look out the window and all you hear is the noise of air travel, which is actually not very nice. Um, uh, So I've decided to write an email and ask that the hashtag PBezzle movement be enlarged to include the growing number of intrepid Irish travellers who wander the globe for weeks on end searching for the next Wi-Fi zone where they can download the latest second captain's instalment, allowing them to chuckle away to themselves on planes while staying in touch with the busy sporting calendar they're missing back home. Another hashtag may be required, perhaps the PBizzle 
with itinerant, replacing emigrant. Anyways, the fasten your seatbelt sign has been illuminated. The journey is almost at an end. Keep up the great work. <laughs> internet radio is keeping us all sane and connected. <laughs> Regards, Michael Cox. I love Michael. internet radio. Yeah, I just bloody love it, Ken. Uh, everyone's always trying to find new ways of broadening out the franchise. And, you know, we do. We, we respect the suggestions. That's just Pierce. But what's to stop lads on the red eye to London sending us P-Bizzles? Uh, lads on the ferry across to a Celtic game. I mean, where does this all end? No, it's muddy. Oh, we, must, we must jealously guard what we have here. So, we come now to an email modestly entitled The Best P-Bizzle Ever from Owen Corrigan. Gents, been a huge fan of the show since 2006 when I moved to Galway for work and News Talk was the only radio station I could pick up on my daily commute. Stockholm Syndrome, I believe, is the official term for our current relationship. My mate Kieran moved to Sydney in 2009. I moved over in 2010 and we've been season ticket holders at Sydney FC ever since. Uh, we've been through it all. The lows of a ninth place finish in 2010-11 to the highs of a seventh place finish in 2012-13. <laughs> yes, it's been an emotional roller coaster following the boys in blue. Long story short, I won a season ticker, ticket holder's draw where me and a mate, Kieran, were forced, he uh, says in bold, to dress up as the famous citizen mascots, Sky and Blue. Not one to shirk from our responsibilities, we duly got tipsy down the local before pulling on the famous jersey and making Alessandro Del Piero, Brett Everton and the main man, Nicky Suntan Carroll, proud by getting beaten up by the good children of Sydney in front of an almost one-third full Sydney football stadium. <laughs> Attached are a few photos for the second captain's bedroom, and I can confirm that the photos, photographs are great, uh, but it is deeply troubling in some way to see two grown men wearing a mascot suit holding a large green hashtag p side. Troubling and amazing. Uh, measure. Brett Emerton. Manny, Manny Still on the go. Alessandro Del Piero. Well, no, it's... I knew Del Piero. I mean, you hear, you hear occasionally about Del Piero, but Brett Emerton, it's a while since I've heard those words. It's probably less surprising that Brett Emerton is playing in the A-League, but yours in sport from Sydney, own the male mascot from Dunshockland and Kieran from Artane. P.S. We can now add Mrs. Alessandro Del Piero to the list of people we have high-fived while dressed as blue cartoon people. <laughs> uh, so very, very well that's, played that's to you. That's brilliant. Well played to you, Owen. Uh, we will put up the photograph. Uh, on our page irishtimes.com forward slash second captains and as we get closer to Christmas we would love to hear all of your tales of how you you got to your current location how you're finding it how you're listening to us and all the rest so please don't be shy we love reading your mails in fairness they're brilliant I wonder how well Ranko Despotovic is getting on Oh, he scored the winner in this in this oh, uh, in this game yeah I, I shortened the email slightly hmm? Ranko Ranko Despotovic is that a name? yeah the guy who who came in for he sounds like a Bond villain, but Del, Del Piero, I think, was injured, so Despotovic came in. Yeah, um, if you, yeah, if you've got anything you want to say to us uh, for the people, as I thought, second captains at irishtimes.com. We got loads over the last couple of weeks, so keep them coming. What's coming up in second captains football? That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you I'd like to stay alive. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. What are you doing down here, you show me, man? Well, we were talking about it on Tuesday, and it came to pass on Wednesday that Roberto Martinez took David Moyes to school in uh, somewhat humiliating circumstances for the former Everton manager. So we'll talk a little bit about Martinez and Everton and the changes that he's made there. Now they seem to have improved markedly really over uh, last season we're also going to talk a bit about the, obviously the World Cup draws tomorrow uh, in Brazil and we're going to head down to one of our correspondents 
in that uh, beautiful Latin American country. I'm glad we're talking about Martinez because a large part of the focus was on David Moyes, which mm. is understandable. But Martinez is really interesting this year, even the way he's speaking ahead of the head of the game. How do you mean? Well, just being asked about his aspirations for the season. It seems the more the season goes on, the less clear he is in stating that, well, you know, we'll, we'll see how we go. It looks like th- He looks like somebody, he's carrying himself with a very confident sort of disposition. Roberto even, Champions League Martinez? Yeah, yeah. That, that guy. Well, he's playing Arsenal next, so... <laughs> we'll, we'll see then. He's but. got the chance to, uh, you know, to lay down his, his Champions mm. League, his case for the Champions League against uh, Arsene Wenger, Mesut Ozil, Superman, and all the other Arsenal players. All right, I just want to move on to our last story today, which is the doping story in horse racing that you've probably been reading about. The Irish trainer, Jared Butler, disqualified for five years by the British Horse Racing Authority after a number of his horses tested positive for a banned anabolic steroid. Now, there was a BHA disciplinary panel hearing into this, and they concluded that his actions were, and I quote this, an appalling breach of his duty to look after the interests of the horses in his care and amounted to conduct that was seriously prejudicial to the integrity, proper conduct, and good reputation of horse racing in Great Britain. Greg Wood has been writing about this story for The Guardian and joins us now. Greg, some unanswered questions exist, I know, surrounding other trainers and maybe the sport more generally, which we will get to. But just Jared Butler, first of all, you talk about how low he was prepared to sink. How low was Jared Butler prepared to sink? Well, I mean, you described it as a doping story and on the surface, to some extent it is, but what it turned into was really more of a welfare story. Um, we knew from a long way back, I mean, in February, the, the BHA testers arrived at Gerard Butler's stable and found positives for um, stanozolol, which clearly is a, is a serious and banned anabolic steroid. And the story had been developing over many months. And it was known that he had admitted himself he had used Sungate on his horses and he'd said that he had injected it into his horses. What emerged at the hearing uh, just a couple of weeks ago was that it wasn't Sungate at all that he was injecting into his own horses. It was a uh, a product which is 10 times stronger, which is designed for bodybuilders, human bodybuilders, which he'd just bought straight off the internet and taken it upon himself to inject into his horses, which is clearly a, a reckless and uh, quite extraordinary thing for any licensed trainer to do. It really is. And aside from anything else, did he claim to have any expertise in the area of of injecting? No, I, he said that he'd seen it done hundreds of times and seemed to think that as a result he would be able to do it himself. It turned out from the uh, went from the written reasons uh, which were given in the case. Which incidentally, if anyone who's listening is interested in racing and in this case, I, I would strongly recommend them to read them because it is a fascinating story. It, it sets it all out in exactly how they went about finding what happened and the emissions he made. And one of them was that he, he just wasn't very good at it. He was he was spilling the stuff. He couldn't get the, the vials open. But he did manage to inge- do 16 separate injections into four of his horses. And that was what accounted for the, the bulk of his five-year ban. Um, in the end, he was banned also with concurrent bans, smaller bans for for the actual doping and the positive tests, but it, it was the welfare issue I and mean, the extraordinary breach of, of the basic, uh, his basic duty of welfare duty to his horses, which was the, the main reason why he got banned for five years. And he may, he can apply for a license again in five years' time. I mean, that's how it works, but um, it, there's no way it would be an, uh, automatic that he would get it. And I strongly suspect that he wouldn't uh, because he would have to pass a fit and proper person test and it would be very unlikely, I would think, that he would pass it. Nine other trainers had 
horses who also received Sungate and we probably need to be clear that that's the first substance you talked about there the Rexogen um, is the again more kind of heavy duty stuff but only Clive Britton of those nine other trainers has actually admitted to being one of them um, nothing is going to happen to either him or the, or the other eight trainers involved no I mean what it in the end highlighted was there was a, a fairly glaring loophole in the BHA's rules um, I don't think it was for any real lack of will on their part that they didn't bring any charges because trainers are strictly liable for whatever's in their horses' systems. And it was quite clear from the medication records that these horses had been given Sungate, which is one of the interesting points in the case that uh, it had been advised as a treatment for joint uh, problems by a vet from this firm called Rossdale's, though it's practice called Rossdale's, which is uh, not only a, a big practice, it's the biggest equine practice anywhere in Europe. And it's by far and away the biggest practice in Newmarket. So it spends a lot of its time, well, almost all of its time dealing with racehorses and really should have known um, what was in any substance before uh, advising its use. But be that as it may, these trainers were then strictly liable for the fact that it was clearly in their horses' systems. But none of the horses tested positive. Um, by the time any of them, and by the time it was discovered, uh, it was out of their system and there was no way to test for it. And the advice that the VHA got was that without that positive test to a bit of paper they could actually hold up in the hearing and say, here it is, here's the evidence, they wouldn't be able to get a, uh, the charges proved. So I think somewhat reluctantly, and very reluctantly, they decided they wouldn't be able to um, bring any charges against those trainers. And that loophole has now been closed. It's, um, they've already moved to do it. And in future, if there's a similar case, it won't be a defence. They, they will be able to bring charges without that positive test. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Maybe horse racing was a bit behind the curve on that one because we've seen in other sports, particularly athletics and cycling also with Lance Armstrong and others in recent years that in terms of doping and pure doping, a lot of the time in other sports, now you don't actually need a positive test. There are so many more maybe elaborate ways, not even elaborate, but maybe more common sense ways of finding out whether or not the wrong substances have been taken. Indeed. I mean, this was also a not really your classic doping case. I mean, there's there's all of ideas. When people hear about horses being doped, they think they're, especially with steroids, they think it's being done to make them run faster, uh, to improve their performance. And I think when it came to Sungate, I mean, it was more a treatment that had been recommended by a vet. And uh, although it, I mean, it was certainly counted as cheating because it's a banned substance, it's a different sort of cheating. Uh, it's not really performance enhancing. It wouldn't have made the horses run any faster when they got to the track. Uh, you could say it was performance enhancing in the sense that any performance, if they actually get there, any performance is better than no performance at all. But w- what it did mean was that horses that were struggling to, to get to a race course were able to get to a track. Uh, that is effectively cheating other trainers and other riders who play by the rules um, because the, the market owners tend to notice things. Like if a certain trainer gets six runs a year out of his horses and another trainer only gets four, they they might ask questions if they happen to have a horse that doesn't get to the track. They'll think, well, if I go to the chap down the road, maybe I'll actually get some runs out of you know out of my horse. Greg, just finally, the big story earlier on in the year was the Godolphin trainer Mohammed Al Zarumi receiving an eight year ban. Now we have this five year ban for Jared Butler, um, and the rest of this investigation, I guess, go goes away after he's been found guilty. Are you concerned about maybe bigger questions about how prevalent this kind of thing, about not only doping, but the welfare of horses um, in this sport? Are there concerns here that things are going on that actually haven't even come to light? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there has to be a concern, and to some extent there always will be, because so much of what happens in racing happens behind closed doors. I mean, one real concern, I think, that, that I have, and I think it's one, that, to be fair, that's shared by the BHA, is that vets are not regulated mm-hmm. by the BHA. Um, the, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons is the regulator for vets and always has been. And in a way, that's right, because you know, vets have deserved to be sort of judged by a jury of their peers if they're accused of doing something wrong that might easily cost them their livelihood. Um, at the same time, they, they play a huge and crucial role in any racing stable. And uh, a good vet uh, is worth their weight in gold. It's a question of when they when they cross the line and if they can be uh, persuaded, if you like, or if they see it in their interest to, to maybe sometimes step across the line just to, to help a valued client. I, a lot of vets have clients with, with big racing yards say that it would account for a large part of their income. So that is a, is a worry. Um, you have to basically take it on trust that people are working for the best possible motives. And, but but that, that will always be a concern until there is some way of getting vets to account for themselves. And it's going to be a very hard thing to do. Um, it was obvious in the Nicky Henderson, James Main case that you may recall uh, three or four years ago, um, where a horse of the Queens was injected with a, a banned substance on the day of a race. Uh, James Main, the vet concerned, could not be compelled to come to the hearing to give evidence. Uh, they wanted to come and hear his side of the story. He refused to go, and he was within his rights to refuse. That is a concern. As far as steroids and actual performance enhancement goes, Mahmoud Al-Zaruni, well, it was an extraordinary case. Uh, I mean, even looking back now, it's still hard to credit I mean, it's only it's, it's less than a year ago. I was sat in a press conference in Dubai listening to Mahmoud Al-Zaruni talking about his hopes for the new season. Um, and it, apparently at that time, while he was in this press conference in March, back home in Newmarket, there was a, a huge doping program underway. Um, Which has been... It, it's always going to be a risk. Sorry, I mean, I was going to say, it's always, it's always going to be an issue and people will always be trying... There may always be people who will try and bend the rules. With steroids... The, the, the thing is, you can see, I mean, you, people can tell if a horse is on steroids to some extent. I mean, that was one of the most extraordinary things about the Godolphin case. There are, there are at least 21 horses that were doped with a powerful anabolic steroid, and no one seems to have noticed anything, or that's what we're told to believe. They prosecuted Zaruni, they had him up on charges, and they got him out of the game in about three or four days. And it was far too fast. Lots of people said that at the time. Uh, it was done too quickly. It was almost like it had went backwards they got him out of the game and then investigated but you can't investigate once you've already got rid of the main suspect um then when it transpired a couple of weeks later that the list of horses he'd handed over saying this is all the list of horses i've doped this is the complete list it turned out there were seven more when they tested the horses at Godolphin HQ, and one of them was the St. Ledger winner. So how did he manage to forget that one? And this is the problem, I guess. At that time, though, he was gone. Yeah, so yeah. he was out of the game, so they couldn't ask him. You talk about, Greg, the idea of trust, ideally, and you know, having to take things at face value where possible. But I guess in other sports, that's proven to be um, you know, maybe problematic in cases like these. I know that one in particular was spectacular, but even this most recent case of the last couple of weeks... Would that lead you? Is that the concern, really? That well, ideally, you would take it on trust. Actually, there has to be a will among trainers together and among people in the industry generally to be upfront about this. And maybe if there is a problem, to get it out into the open a little bit more. Well, I mean, it is it, clearly, yeah, absolutely, it's an issue, and the pressure 
for success. So the pressure just to get horses onto the track is getting stronger all the time, both on the flat and over jumps. I mean, jumps racing has come on tremendously over the last 20 years. It's a totally different game now to, to where it was, say, a quarter of a century ago. Cheltenham is the be-all and end-all. People want their horses to get there. Um, and, yeah, the pressure on trainers is, is unrelenting. Um, you have to you have to presume innocence to some extent. You you can't just assume that everyone is out to do whatever they can just to 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 get to where they want to be. Um, but yeah, vigilance is required. And, and what I think the BHA are going to be looking at is increasing the amount of um, testing and training. That was what um, did for both Gerard Butler and Mahmoud Al Zarouni in the end. And the, the odd thing, really, was that they should both have known that there was going to be a team turning up on their doorstep at some point because both of them had had a positive test from a race course test within the previous 12 months. Mm. And it's a matter of policy at the BHA that if, some, if someone's horse gives a test for a serious banned substance on the race course, then they will descend on the yard and, and test a significant number of the horses at some point in the next 12 months. Uh, Gerard Butler's according to the findings yesterday, was quite surprised to see them, but he shouldn't have been because they would have been there sometime between February and I think it's about July anyway, and he should have known they were coming. But that's the way you're going to catch them. You will only really get to the bottom of it or find out how deep the, the, the problem is by doing a lot more testing and training. And if you do a lot of testing and training and you don't come up with any positives, then you may be able to think, well, perhaps, hopefully, we don't have a problem. But until you do that, you can't really say for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Greg Wood of the Guardians, and thanks so much for taking the time. Pleasure. Yeah, Greg, talk there, Murph, about the it not just being necessarily a doping story, it's also an animal welfare story, which is true enough, but in a, in a doping sense, I guess that's the only way we can compare it to other sports, which yeah. is why a couple of questions I asked him there, I just wanted to get a sense of where horse racing was at compared to some of the... Maybe there were more... I don't know, the, the, a lot of the times the reason that a sport cleans up its act is because there are commercial imperatives to do so and it's really in its own interest because people start to lose trust in it. Now, it seems that Greg thinks there's still enough trust there that it's not an issue at the moment, but you would wonder. Yeah, um, and the idea of a, a whistleblower isn't really going to happen when, the, <laughs> when there are horses involved. Um, I think yeah. it, there could know, be a whistleblowing trainer, though, or somebody working in a yard or yeah, something like that. I, I think perhaps maybe yeah. that. If we're going to go down the route of looking for someone to blow the lid on this, I think leaving the horses out of it would probably be. While we're on the issue, wise course of action of animal rights. Mm. Have you heard about the chimpanzee in the US? Which Tommy, one? no. Tommy the chimp. What did he do? A US animal rights group is calling on a New York court to recognise a chimpanzee as a legal person. And what's believed to be illegal first. What, for marital purposes? Or? No. The Non-Human Rights Project wants a chimp named Tommy to be granted legal personhood and thus entitled to the fundamental right of bodily liberty. Well, I... Basically, I they, found this, they found this guy hanging around up somewhere upstate New York, not in particularly great conditions. And they thought, he, he, he needs... Like a chimpanzee rights. just living free in upstate New York. Well, no, he was living. He was owned by somebody. This is a, an obvious breach of his basic human rights. Hmm. Well, it's basically what they're saying, even though he's a chimpanzee. Well, look, you know, I, I don't necessarily think there's a distinction between a human and a chimpanzee. Why? Well, there is, though, isn't there? Well, you draw that line, Kieran. You know, I'll, I'll sit here and I'll watch where you draw the line between <laughs> human and chimpanzee. Well, I would say Owen. Like, everything... I am know, the line. Everything less hairy than Owen is a human. <laughs> and then anything hairier than him... Is an animal. Yeah, we can all member of the animal kingdom. We can all sit here and laugh and at what is a serious discussion. 
what, that Tommy the chimpanzee be granted human rights? This is a serious discussion. Well, you know, I, I just wonder if... You know the way it always seems to be the case that when you look back through history, yeah, you kind of can't believe the kind of stuff people used to do, yeah, burning witches and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, how could they have really? How could they that? have left Tommy adrift? Do you ever wonder that maybe you know future generations will look back at how we treat animals and think, how could they do that? Surrounded by so much callous slaughter, how could they just go about their business as though nothing was out of the Here, ordinary? Listen, I've got to go get some lunch. So, thanks, Murph. Uh, thanks, Owen. Thanks, a million. Thanks, thanks Ken. Thanks. And thanks to Tommy if you are listening, if you are listening to this in. Yeah. Show. We will chat to you for second captain's football a little bit later on. Thanks. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.